0: Today uh, we are very uh, hon- I am very honored and to present with Charles a very personal account. Of his experience of homelessness. Um, It takes a great deal of of courage and humility to present this story and we're doing it because this is our focus this year and I I believe that in order for us to be sufficiently open to the movement of the spirit about that we need to hear experiences and we need to have, have experiences and hear experiences and let them reach into our hearts of our own congregation and so we're going to hear a little bit about from a manuscript he's prepared and I hope that you will find it as touching as I have.
1: Thank you Annette. Um, Good morning everyone. Um, I'm going to start with something I noticed um, on the front page of the IJ on Friday. And that was um, that a San Rafael official with regard to the homeless people in that area who were apparently congregating in a park there said more or less quote unquote, we don't want them to get used to hanging out there. We want to break this cycle. So a major theme of From Harvard to Homelessness and Beyond and also of my talk this morning is us and them. Who is them? Um, The outsider, the reject, the failure within the dominant culture. And um, I think I want to start by reading um, an excerpt from um, my book, From Harvard to Homelessness and Beyond, um, that deals with that question, but kind of coming at it from the opposite direction of how should we relate to the outsider, the untouchable, um, when we are faced with such an individual, um, that brings up feelings in all of us, including me. So, um, this is an excerpt, um, again, from from Harvard to Homelessness and Beyond. Um, and before... You can't hear me. Okay. Have I'll have to hold it. I'll hold the pages. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. For that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not the mic right up here. I'm not too good with these sorts of logistics. Okay. Um,
0: so... See, we're trying not to frighten Charles. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, here we go. Um, So in the manuscript, at this point, I've been talking about the concept of the untouchables, and um, I'll just read a short excerpt here. There is one who touched the untouchables of his time and led them out of invisibility. In the story reported in the Gospels of Mark and of Matthew, a quote-unquote leper one who had a skin disease that was believed by the Jewish religion of that time to signify total religious impurity, and who therefore was literally an untouchable, came and knelt before Jesus and said, Master, if you wish, you can make me clean. The Gospels then report that Jesus, full of compassion, touched the man and said, I do want that. Be clean. This was unheard of for a spiritual master in that tradition to touch, to physically touch an untouchable, and even more so, perhaps, to care about his welfare and well-being. Yet Jesus courageously went outside of his own culture, the dominant culture of the time, to heal and to care. Every culture has its untouchables, its liminal people, its invisible population. For modern American culture, it is the homeless. They are seen as a black pit of hopelessness, in which no one in the, into which no one in the dominant culture should ever fall, and if someone does and goes from being one of the affluent us to one of the homeless them, it is their fault. So um, having said that, when I saw this um, in the IJ on Friday, um, I just want to repeat that quote. We don't want them to get used to hanging out there. We want to break this cycle. I found myself wondering what is going to be broken, the cycle or the people.
0: I think this ties in very well with the readings today. You, you heard today the story of Jonah who has decided that Nineveh is so bad it can't ever be forgiven, whereas he can be forgiven for running away from God the first time, jumping into the belly of the fish and saying, oh, but I'm so sorry, forgive me, getting out again and saying, okay, I'll go to Nineveh if you have to, but I don't really believe you should forgive them. This is Old Testament thinking. The, the, the quality of forgiveness is proportionate to the amount of evil done. So if you've done a lot of evil, like Nineveh, like the whole Assyrian Empire, you can't possibly be forgiven. And this is the attitude that Charles is talking about today.
1: Thank you, Annette. Um, so having said that and trying to contextualize this a little bit, I'm going to read the first paragraph, just the first paragraph, um, uh, From Harvard to Homelessness and Beyond. Um, I guess I should say before I read it, I've actually experienced two periods of homelessness. One in March of 2004, and I'll explain sort of the chain of events that led to that for about mercifully ten days. But I'm kind of a slow guy and I feel like God must have thought, you know, Charles is just not getting it. Because this year, well last year actually, in 2014, um, through a kind of domino effect of circumstances, I experienced almost three months of homelessness. And I don't believe I would have survived that if it hadn't been for Annette and Richard and this congregation, so I just want to say thank you and um, thank you everyone here. Um, So here's the first paragraph and this was, um, I wrote the first draft of From Harvard to Homelessness about three years after this experience. I, I just couldn't write about it right away, but anyway, okay, here goes. It was March 20th, 2004. As I spread my sleeping bag on the steps of my church, at the time, at the time, not this church, um, another church, um, at 11 p.m. that Saturday night, I wondered how I had gotten there. A straight A student in high school, a Harvard graduate, it seemed like the world should have been full of promise for me, and yet something had gone wrong, terribly wrong. I had worked hard and trusted in the American dream, yet here I was, homeless almost all of my possessions gone, out of resources, out on the street. Had I failed it? Had it failed me? I didn't know. So let me share with you a bit of that context. I was a liberal arts graduate in college. did sort of odd job tutoring for a few years afterwards, barely surviving, um, helped financially by my parents. Uh, And then I have always been pretty good at math um, and um, went to a training program, a one-year training program, sort of like a sausage factory. I went in one end as a liberal arts graduate and came out the other end as a computer programmer. So um, (laughs) I enjoyed it and it was good work and I could support myself financially. And now fast forwarding to. The kind of programming I I did sort of stopped happening, so I segayed into becoming a technical writer um, and um, had various jobs in Silicon Valley, um, climbing the ladder, or so I thought. So I was a senior technical writer at a company um, that was privately owned but was just about to do an IPO, and we all got stock options. Mine was one of the smaller ones, actually. I had 10,000 shares, and um, we were told that the um, public offering would start at $50 a share. So there I was, an instant half-millionaire in July of 2000, or so I thought. But the problem was that the company had waited a little bit too long, didn't quite catch the moment, Um, high tech started tanking and um, instead of all of us becoming at least half millionaires and we believed confidently that um, the $50 would double so I would have been a full millionaire. the venture capital people came, visited us, told us the sky was the limit. Um, anyhow, six months later, um, there were layoffs instead. The VC people pulled out and no IPO, um, no millions for any of us, uh, layoffs for a goodly number of us. Uh, the most senior people, and as I experienced several layoffs after that in high tech, um, the most senior people always got the ax first in my experience. So anyway, um, I dodged the bullet for, um, I think three or four more jobs and then it hit me. Um, I had saved up twice for a down payment and it all disappeared because the companies at that time didn't want employees who they'd have to pay benefits to, they wanted 1099 workers. So no unemployment benefits, um, savings went away. Um, my bank account in March of 20, 2004 went down to $50. That was my total um, resources financially in the world. It was a terrifying time. Uh, I turned to the one institution I thought would help me, my church, and um, I went from being a reasonably affluent, regularly tithing, uh, regular congregant of this church to poverty. It took several months to happen. Um, and I noticed instantly that my status had disappeared. I was kind of a non-person. Um, I was given handouts to show me where I could find homeless shelters and free food. Um, When I asked to speak with um, the clergy people, they uniformly told me they were too busy um, preparing their sermons or doing other sort of things like that. It was a terrible experience, and um, I never thought I would really recover from it. Um, I feel like I have experienced recovery here, and again, thank you um, all of you for reaching out to me during those three difficult months last year. Um, What I want to talk about now is what it feels like to be what um, I will translate as a wandering stranger. This is a term that shows up both, well, you know, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, it shows up as ger in the Old Testament, xenos in the New Testament, hospes in the Latin version. It basically means someone who wanders around, um, who doesn't have a permanent home. And in Matthew 25:35, Jesus teaches us, is quoted as teaching us, "I was a wandering stranger, a xenos, a hospes." And you took me in. So I want to say there's a concept I talk about in my book which I call imaginative compassion. We're not all called in the same way to be with people in need in our culture. But I think we are called to reflect in our minds and hearts what we're supposed to do um, when we encounter someone in this situation. So I just want to talk a little bit about basics, like what does it feel like to be homeless and what are the basic things that you need when you're going through and hopefully one goes through and doesn't stay in that experience. Well, I felt a sense of exhaustion, isolation and shame. I felt like a total failure. Um, and having to worry every single day for the first couple of weeks about where I was going to stay that night, thanks to the generosity of this church, um, and it, it came upon me very suddenly to, to go into the details. Would, uh, it was a domino effect of losing my housing where I'd been for two years, and then a temporary place, and then another temporary place, and then a third temporary place that was all set up and fell through at the, literally the last moment, two days before I was going to move in there. So um, the first three days, again, thanks to your generosity, I was able to be in a motel and to get some sleep and to try to understand and to pray about and to take in the enormity of what had happened to me. And most of all, I prayed for hope, that's that's most of what I did and um, really appreciated that when I was in a really low state emotionally, physically, fin- not so much financially actually, but that's the irony of this, this version of it, um, I felt like Richard, Annette, all of you treated me exactly the same as if I had become that high tech millionaire. And that meant a lot to me, and my heartfelt thanks for that. My financial and home status did not in the least affect, I felt, how people reached out to me at this church. And that, I think, is one of the most important things that that any of us can do, you know, and I that in prayer, of course. And I try to keep that in mind now that, thank God, I do have a home again. Um, in terms of really practical needs, I started, you know, I needed a few days to recover obviously. I started looking pretty quickly again, and I had been doing a housing search ever since I heard I was going to lose my um home here in Mill Valley um in early 2004. I started my housing search in fact right after the new year. Very difficult. So anyhow, I restarted it and I discovered that um for instance when I was staying for a few days at the Marin Headlands Youth Hostel, there's no cell phone coverage there. Um, at least not for my cell phone. I have a flip phone. There might be more powerful ones that, where it works, but anyhow. So I needed to try to find cell phone coverage. At the end of the day, I was literally too exhausted to go driving around to try to find it. So I found one spot um, where I could um, check in with Annette, and we tried to do you know phone check-ins on a daily or near, nearly daily basis, and that really, really helped. Um, Sort of intermittently, we could hear each other. So that's a difficulty that most people in the housing search don't have. Um, email. Um, I don't have a smartphone, um, so I need Wi-Fi, and my somewhat ancient laptop um, um, doesn't have a battery that works very well. So I needed a library, or I needed our church library. Um, so. Um, How to become again um, a functioning member of the dominant culture if you're lacking some of the basics. And these are basics that um, were not basics, say 10 years ago when I was doing a housing search. So um, safety Um, and what it means to have a car that looks like a homeless person's car, Um, crammed to the gills, Um, you know, has everything in it. you know can barely well, I made sure I could see out the back window, but you know basically um, okay, and some of you probably saw my Volvo uh, when it was parked in front of the church or nearby. Um, I spent a week camping at Pantool, and I really like Pantool. And I was, um, it was spiritually very nourishing also, and I went on a sunset hike on the coastal fire road, very beautiful, watching sunset, you know, a little bit off the trail you could see beautiful fog just starting to come in. I was feeling very mellow as I walked back to Pantol. And it was midweek and there were no other cars in the parking lot except for my Volvo. And right next to my Volvo I saw a car pull up. Now. That seemed to me sort of suspicious. Here's this huge empty parking lot, why is this person pulling up right next to my Volvo? And then I saw the person sort of look at my Volvo and take out their cell phone. And I thought, this is getting worse and worse, and then they drove away. And I thought, you know, this doesn't feel right to me, I'm going to listen to my intuition and just kind of hang around and see what happens. Well, in about three minutes a park ranger showed up, parked next to my Volvo, got out of his car, started walking around my Volvo, looking inside. Um, Privacy also is something that is in short supply when you're homeless, so um, this was upsetting, um, extra upsetting. So maybe foolishly, maybe not, I walked over to this man and said, excuse me, that's my car, is there a problem? And he said, oh no, we just do routine checks from time to time. Then he looked at the dashboard and saw that I was staying for about a week. He said, it looks like you're staying for an awfully long time. And we both knew what the subtext was of this conversation, but I wasn't going to go down that road feeling already like a defenseless failure, Um, and I said, well, um, I've camped out at Pantol before, true, and I never had a chance to stay here this long in the past, true, so I'm really enjoying my stay. Um, He left it at that. But I must say, I haven't been to Pantol since, and I'll have to get my mind around returning there. Safety is definitely a concern. I was fortunate that I didn't have to go to a shelter. We explored that option and um, I was told by a trusted source um, that most shelters, um, including the ones run by our own Episcopal church, are simply cannot guarantee safety. They don't have enough staff to be there at night. So you're kind of taking your life in your hands when you go there, um, sometimes quite literally. Okay, well I feel like I've kind of talked enough here. Um, I just want to say I know that there are no easy solutions um, and I think what it's mostly about is keeping an open mind and heart and just to reflect perhaps from time to time on Jesus' teaching of I was a wandering stranger and you took me in and how you can do that and how I can do that. Maybe not literally, I can't, I'm a renter, I can't take wandering strangers into my home and sometimes it isn't safe, you know. um, The stereotype of the homeless is sometimes true. There are substance abusers, there are people who are severely mentally ill out on the street because of the deinstitutionalization that started here in California in the 80s or 70s actually. But there are also people like me, people who are reasonably well educated, Um, reasonably affluent middle class people who, for whatever the reason, took a nosedive financially and are out on the street. So I just um, want to remind both you, and thank you for listening to me and myself, to keep those people in our minds and hearts and prayers um, and to try to carry forward Jesus' teaching to reach out to those who are never reached out to. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Charles. I I really appreciate you doing this. The task force for outreach wanted to have sponsor Charles' presentation today because this is our the beginning of our pre-Lenten getting ready for our Lenten projects in which we will offer you opportunities to volunteer in various ways to help the homeless. And I hope that you will take into your heart and minds the things you heard today and reflect on what way Church of our Savior can welcome the wandering stranger. at OurSaviorMV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V, for Mill Valley, dot O-R-G. We wish you God's peace. We hope to greet you in person very soon.